You know, I was thinking uh, about what the Lord was doing during worship. I wonder sometimes we lose sight of the fact that it's during worship the Lord is doing something in us. We think about the song we're singing or, or whatever. And, uh, you know, I was thinking about um, a couple tables that I've been building in my shop, and they start off with uh, some rough sawn wood. Um, rough sawn is, you can't, you have no clue what's underneath the rough sawn surface. It's just a, just a piece of wood. Um, and it's supposed to become something. Um, I was thinking about that. How many of us, you know, when we come to the Lord, are we like a rough sawn piece of wood? You take that piece of wood and you, you run it through a surface planer and all of a sudden you begin to see what it's made of. You begin to see what um, the grain looks like. But it had to go through some violent work to get that surface off. And sometimes we have to go through some work to get the rough sawn surface off. And, but it's still just a piece of wood. And then I have to look at it and I have to spend time with it and figure out where the grain matches the best and how the cathedrals of the wood grain works um, and what the grain pattern is and so I don't chip it out. And, and it's, there's a lot of love that goes into turning that piece of wood into something. Really, really, it really is. I know that may sound weird or ethereal, but uh, I step back and look at that piece of wood. I even step up on a ladder and look down on that piece of wood because uh, every part of that piece of wood is supposed to become something great. This isn't a part of my message, just what I feel like talking about right now. Because <laughs> it was what was happening during worship, at least in my own heart. And, you know, sometimes we try to come to the Lord uh, all buffed and polished and completely worked out. And I think many times he's saying, if you'd only come to me like a rough sawn piece of wood, I can do my work on you. But since you think you're already worked, you're just singing a song. And what's interesting is even after I begin to measure things down and mark things where I want them to be and start cutting the wood and start getting the blank pieces together, they're just still blanks. They're just separate pieces of wood that, quite frankly, outside of the creator, in this case in my shop, me, I'm the creator. I know where each piece goes. I know how each piece is supposed to work with the next piece, but the wood has no clue. How many times have we come into worship thinking, oh, we got the answer, and I know where I be, I know where I belong, and, and the Lord is just saying, if you be a blank, I'll fill in the blanks. What I thought was really interesting is the Spirit of God was speaking to me about that during our worship time was, you know, when I get down to the last little bits of putting uh, a table together in this case, and the, uh, what's the, I, don't, I hate to use this phrase, but I can't think of a better axiom, the devil's in the details is one of the, is the phrase. The devil's not in, in, in that. You know what I'm saying? No. And so I'm working on the last little pieces of fine rasping or sanding to try to get things just where it needs to be. And the wood is still resistant. The wood is still fighting me. 
uh, whether it's a little splinter of a chip out that I now have to fix, or whether the wood is now swollen because of the humidity levels different, the joint didn't fit together like it did three days before, the wood is still resisting me. And uh, I wonder, you know, if we would only come to the Lord like a rough sawn piece of wood and quit resisting him, how much more he could do with us, how much more he could make out of us. And uh, it comes down to that very last little bit when you finally look at the table in this case and say, I'm satisfied with it. But interestingly, as the creator of that piece of wood, I still know every one of its imperfections. No one else will see them, but I see them. And I could point them all out, but I choose not to. Not to save my own face, but to keep the beauty of the piece intact. And I just felt like sharing that with you all this morning. It had nothing to do with my message. I got a completely different message this morning. So let's not, let's not get all swollen up in pride and become resistant pieces of wood. And uh, let's go through the trauma that's necessary to become what we're supposed to be. You know, even, and I don't know why I'm still impressed to stick here a minute. It's not just about telling stories in the shop, but the Lord's really speaking in my heart about it. Even when it comes down to putting a camphor edge on to just kind of give that beautiful touch, and I take a chisel, a sharp chisel, but I'm still cutting away a little at a time. I'm just cutting a little piece of wood away to get a fine edge. And I wonder how many times we're resistant to just that little bit of cutting that the Lord does to make us a finer edge, a, a, a more pristine piece of work. Because see, he's the creator. He has said, I know the plans that I have for you, says the Lord. Amen. Plans of good and uh, for uh, dreams of your life, and I'm paraphrasing, and not for you know, conflict and trouble, but, but for good. Let the Lord work on you. Let the Lord work on you. You know, all those pieces of equipment in that shop, whether it be the the table saw, the band saw, the sander is cutting away, and it's a violent process. In fact, if the creator's hands get too close to those things, I could be up here with less than these 10, right? Um, let the Lord work on you, and uh, I think he's going to work on you today because the title of my message is Love Your Enemies. It's about to be like a table saw up in here. Seemed like the natural progression to me. A few weeks ago, I spoke to you about the Shema, loving the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your mind. And then I think last week I preached a message on Chemez, Chesed. It's said a couple of different ways. And that was about loving your neighbor with this loving kindness. But then there's another aspect of it is that we're supposed to love our enemies. And we're okay with, we can kind of fit into that scheme of uh, loving the Lord with all our heart and our soul and mind. And we like to say it uh, and wonder sometimes how true it is. And we might even say, well, I love my neighbor, you know, because your neighbor is like, you know, welcome to my neighborhood, you know, as a friend or somebody that's associated. But we don't, you know, we're not real good at loving our enemies. We're not real good at, thank you for your enthusiasm about loving our enemies. 
In fact, when I wrote the title to the message, I, I chose to actually put a question mark on it because, you know, the words uh, love your enemies is probably best drawn out as a question. I mean, because that's kind of what happens on the inside when you see those words. What? What? Love your enemies? I mean, really? Uh, are you sure? Uh, I can wrap my brain around loving the Lord. I can wrap my brain around loving my neighbor. But surely you must have misread something somewhere to think that now you're going to come back with a third message in this series that says i got to love my enemies. Well, maybe we should turn to Matthew chapter 5. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. I'm going to be reading... Awesome, praise the Lord. I'm going to be reading verses uh, 43 through 48, Matthew chapter 5. Yep, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second commandment is just like it, and that's love your neighbor as yourself. And then we find there's uh, another command, if you will, another mandate to love our enemy as well. Here it is, Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 through 48. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Here's an interesting statement now, because it, 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 it draws a condition so i have to love my enemies bless those who curse me do good to those who hate me pray for those who spitefully use me pray for those who persecute me so that i may be a son of my father in heaven that's what it says i'll read it again i was personalizing it uh, but i say to you love your enemies bless those who curse you do good to those who hate you and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you that you may be sons of your father in heaven can I help you with something? You're seeing it. There's an implication there that if I don't love my enemies, if I don't bless those that curse me, if I don't do good those, to those that hate me, if I don't pray for those who spitefully use me and persecute me, I don't stand as an image in the image of God. I don't stand as a son of God. For he makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust for if you love those who love you, so what? That's you know, pretty much what it's saying. What reward have you? So what? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, again, so what? Do not even, uh, uh, what, what do you do more than others? Therefore you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Not perfect as in um, pristinely without flaw but perfect as in mature growing up becoming more like Christ because to be more like Christ is to love my enemies to be less like Christ is to say well that's where I draw the line they're enemies they've cursed me they've persecuted me they've despitefully used me they've betrayed me and the list can go on and on and on and on far be it for me to love them I'm praying down curses on them from heaven. Get them, Lord. 
And yet we see here, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And we understand that that was a commandment in the law that was a written command back from the book of Leviticus, I believe it is, as well, I believe, as it said in Deuteronomy, to love your neighbor as yourself. But the Pharisees, which were a part of the religious establishment, they added an unwritten commandment that, quite frankly, was an assumption that stands in opposition to the words of the Lord. The written words of the Lord was love your neighbor as yourself. And because of that, the religious establishment said, well, it's, it absolutely implies if I'm going to love my neighbor as myself, then I'm to hate my enemies. And they actually had a spoken law. And it automatically implied, i got to hate my enemies. However, I found that right from the Old Testament, this is an assumption that stands in opposition to God. To say, I'm going to, I can love my neighbor, and the statement, love my neighbor, means that if it's an enemy, then like the religious establishment, which quite frankly is most institutions of the church. Boy, Mike, you missed it, but that's all right. Oh. <laughs> it's just it's a personal joke. Um, it really is true. I mean, most churches are nothing more than religious establishments of religion. I, I don't want it. Man, I want a church that loves God and says, God, go ahead and take this rough-sawn piece of wood and make me into something beautiful, something good. Something beautiful, something good. What's it say? All my, what is the words? Help me out. Come here, sister. Yes, you. Come here. Come here, Linda. Come here, Linda. Linda, come here. <laughs> all my confusion? See, all you had to do was walk to me. Okay. <laughs> Something beautiful. You've got to help me with words, right? Something good. All my confusion. He understood. What's next? All I had to do was to offer him, offer him my brokenness and go sit down, Linda. Ron, come here. <laughs> she warned me. She warned me. No, you do not want me. And now she's pointing at you the whole time. So, something beautiful. Something good, all my confusion, he understood. All I had to offer him was brokenness and strife, because he made something beautiful out of my life. Come on now, give the Lord a praise. That was just about fun. <laughs> Amen. So they made an assumption that because it said, love your neighbor, that the opposite side of that coin was an implication that I could hate my enemy. But it, that's not what God's heart was. The Exodus chapter 23 Verses 4 through 5, if you meet your enemy's ox 
or his donkey going astray, you shall surely bring it back to him. Now that was the ox or the donkey of an enemy. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying under its burden and you would refrain from helping it, you shall surely help him with it. So I don't know how they got this implication that because he said, love your neighbor, that that was somehow an assumption that I could hate my enemy. How about Proverbs 24, 17? Do not rejoice when your enemy falls, and do not let your heart be glad when he stumbles. Uh-oh, a couple of you just went through the sanding machine. Yeah. How about Proverbs 25, 21? If your enemy is hungry, your enemy, the person who curses you, the person, person who spitefully uses you, the person who hates you, if your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. Now, if you are like the Pharisees, you would say, well, that's moldy bread. <laughs> give him bread to eat, and if he's thirsty, Give him water to drink. I think that shares with us what truly is the heart of God from an old covenant point of view. So it was very much a religious establishment idea that the opposite of loving your neighbor was it was okay to hate my enemies. Number one on your handout is for the most part, it's easy to love those who love us. But God teaches a deeper, more difficult lesson. We're to love our enemy. We're to go through the difficulty that it takes to love our enemy. The problem is, is that, quite frankly, is a subjective sentiment. In other words, that love there is a feeling that I personally have on the inside based on how I feel at any given moment or based on any given circumstance dictates that subjective sentiment. I love because, not I love in spite of. The commandment of to love my enemy stands in such stark contrast to the ways of the world that it, it seems unnatural. It seems like something that is unreasonable and possibly even impossible that I could love my enemies. Yet for this reason alone, the fact that it stands in opposition to the world's way of doing things, it should stand as an obvious course of action. If it stands in opposition to the world and their worldview and the point of thinking that I can hate my enemies and not love those that aren't like me, uh, then I think that that stands uh, strong enough to say that I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing if it's different than the world. Can somebody say amen? Romans chapter 12, verse 2 says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be renewed or transformed by the renewal of your mind. We're not supposed to be conformed to the world's point of view and the world's view of things. We're supposed to be different. Philippians 2, 5, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights of the world. There's a lot of us that don't love our enemies. We're okay with loving God. We're okay as long as there's a fence in the backyard with loving our neighbor. But quite frankly, 
<laughs> Thank you, Mike. That was good, but the timing was terrible, man. <laughs> uh, we're not that good at loving our enemies. Um, as believers, we should live a lifestyle that shows a higher stage of moral development. We should show that we've grown beyond our own sentiment of emotion and feeling. Now, I didn't say that we should become holier than thou, that we should get a better, I'm better than you are kind of attitude. I didn't say that. Number two on your papers, we're supposed to be salt and we're supposed to be light. We're supposed to be different. We are. We're called to be different. I didn't say above, standing above, head and shoulders over other parts of humanity as though we are great because only God is great. Only God is good. But we are supposed to stand out as different. We are supposed to be salt, and we are supposed to be light. Turn your Bibles just, uh, I believe, probably to the left of where we were. What was I in? 540-something. Now I want to look in chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. You're the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot of men. I'm not going to get into it, but there's some Hebraic idioms that are taking place in this thing that the people that listened to Jesus that day would understood what it meant about salt that was no longer good that was thrown over the threshold for people to walk on. Verse 14, you're the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. So there in Matthew chapter 5, verse 13, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor... This is an interesting statement because, quite frankly, salt never loses its flavor. But it becomes useless in that setting. They would, I'll, I'll share you with this. They would use salt in the bottom of their ovens where they would bake, bake their matzah bread and other things, their unleavened bread and such. And eventually that salt would no longer uh, uh, help with the element of heating the rocks that were there. And so the salt was no good for that purpose. And they'd literally take the salt out of the ovens and they'd throw it outside the door, the threshold of the door. And, of course, people would walk on that. But it didn't lose its flavor, it just lost its usefulness. It lost its purpose is the best way to put that there. Let me, let me read the, uh, the, from the Message Bible. Let me tell you why you are here. Mm, that's what it says. Let me tell you why you're here. Sort of like when I look at that piece of rough sawn wood that's got a live edge on it and it's just, it's just nasty looking. It's got dirt on it. I got to get a brush and clean the dirt off before I put it through any of my machinery. And I, and I stand there, and I get in my head, I'm going to say, let me tell you why you're here. <laughs> We're going to make you into something. That's what the Lord is saying to many of you. Let me tell you why you're here, because I'm going to make you into something beautiful if you'll let me. So here it is, Message Bible. <laughs> let me tell you why you're here. You're here to be salt seasoning that brings out the God flavors of this earth. Whew. If you lose your saltiness... 
how will people taste goodness? You've lost your usefulness and will end up in the garbage. Boy, don't we love that translation. <laughs> Heaven help us. In the ancient world, salt was probably one of the greatest and most valuable commodities that they had. It was said actually by the Greeks that salt is divine. The Romans would say, there's nothing more useful than the sun and salt. So it was a highly valued commodity. And salt had three special qualities, three aspects that would have been understood by the hearers on G of Jesus that day when he said, you are the salt of the earth. Number one, salt was connected with purity. That might be in part because it was white. But if the believer is to be salt, then the believer is to be an example of purity. We live in a society today where purity and the standards of purity are continually being watered down. And problematic as it is, it's happening much in the church where the properties of purity are watered down in the church. That, that was for them. This is a new day as though we've entered into a new dispensation of grace and forgiveness no, it's the same dispensation of grace and forgiveness, but an expectation to live a life of holiness, to live a life of godliness, to live a life of purity. Can I get a witness from somebody? Because moral standards in our nation and across the world are on a downhill runaway. I'm just, my mind is blown just in the last year of the commercials that are on TV that propagate the homosexual lifestyle and propagated in such a way as to make the commercial so enhancing and normal. Moral standards are on a downhill run, and as believers of Jesus Christ, we're supposed to be like salt that rises above the standards of the world, and we're supposed to help people understand the God flavors of the earth. Not the enemies, you know, of course the enemy comes as an angel of light, he represents himself like he's God. Well, he, he may be a God with a little g, the God of this earth, but he is not the God, Jehovah God. Can I get an amen? amen? Number three on your paper is we're supposed to show love, not only to our neighbor, but also to our enemy. Matter of fact, if we were good at loving our enemies, we might be good at loving our neighbors. And we understand that how we love our neighbors is the proof in the pudding on how we love God. There's another message coming from this because it says love your neighbor as yourself. That'll be part four. Love yourself. Uh, the second thing about salt, it was the most common of all preservatives. It was used to keep things from going bad. It was used to keep things from rotting. It was used to keep things from spoiling. As believers, we're supposed to be agents of change. We're supposed to be agents of making a difference, not being like chameleons that just blend our way into society and blend our way into the world's point of view. We're supposed to stand different than that, and we're supposed to change the environment. Where the rest of the world may hold grudges, you and I are supposed to be forgiving and we're supposed to be loving. Uh, where the rest of the world will seek retaliation and revenge, you and I are supposed to show mercy and love. We're supposed to be that which changes the flavor, that which preserves. 
Number three, not on your uh, handout, but in uh, the, the purposes of salt, was salt was used because, because it, lent, it lent flavor. Come on, how many of y'all like salt, you know? I mean, even if the food's been cooked with salt, like pass the salt, right? And I mean, we've, we've converted from having, we do have salt shakers, but now we got bowls. We just wrap it Diane says, well, we'll justify the salt. We'll get a bowl of pepper. Actually, we don't do it like that. We're kind of fancy. But I just realized we're all reaching into the same bowl. That explains why there's pepper in the salt. Christianity is, is, is to life what salt is to food. We're supposed to enhance the flavor of life. When people get around us, life should taste better. Mm. Here we go, running through a very violent machine called the planer. We're supposed to enhance the flavor of life as a whole, not just our neighbor, but we're supposed to enhance the flavor of life to our enemies. Love your enemies. You've heard it said, love your neighbor. But I say to you, the Lord would say, I say to you, love your enemy. Mm. We're supposed to bring something special to the table. You have, how many of you have ever sat down at the table and somebody forgot to put the salt on the table? Yeah. Not at our house, because we have it in big jugs, right? <laughs> but you sit at the table and go, where's the salt? It's almost like, can't even start eating this meal unless the shaker's there. It's that important to the meal. We're not supposed to be something common. We're supposed to be something special. We're not supposed to blend in with our environment. We're supposed to change our environment. We're not supposed to stand above it with some holier-than-thou attitude, but we're supposed to incorporate our way into it in order to bring life, to bring light, to bring flavor of God so that God can be glorified in the good works that we do, not so we can go, well, I guess I got me another star in heaven. Number four in your paper, some of us need to rediscover the flavor of Christian love. There are some, I'm sure, that are sitting in this room today that you have people that you refuse to forgive. They stand as enemies in your spirit and in your soul. And for the Christian, there should be a sparkle. There should be a pizzazz about the believer. There should be something that stands out. Wherever you are, you need to recognize that you are the salt of the earth. But not just salt. We're also told that we are light. Matthew chapter 5 Verses 14 through 16. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Now let's look at this same text from the Message Bible as well. It's really cool. It starts off with, here's another way to put it. You're here to be light, bringing out the God colors 
of this world. God is not a secret to be kept. We're going public with this, as public as a city on the hill. If I make you light bearers, you don't think I'm going to hide you under a bushel, do you? I'm putting you on a light stand. And now that I've put you there on a hilltop, on a light stand, shine. Keep open house to be generous with your lives. By opening up to others, you'll prompt people to be open up to God. What's the opposite of that? What are you doing that's prompting people to distrust God? What are you doing in your life and as part of your mode of operation that, draw, that pushes people away from God? Are you salt? Are you light? Are you that which draws, prompts people to want to walk into the light, Carol Ann? In closing, thank you for not saying amen. I feel so much better about things now. In closing, number five, um, living a life. Yeah, started a movement. That wasn't you, was it? No, it wasn't. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Uh, meanwhile, back at the anointing. Number five, living a life of not only loving your neighbor but also loving your enemy will cause you to be like salt and light and in so doing will prompt others to open up to God. We want our witness to be about standing on a street corner with a Bible and thumping people in the head. And what they need to see is your love. And not just for those that are like you or that love you but especially and more so for those that aren't like you and that don't love you. There's the line in the sand. So I wonder if you can believe it and receive it. Usually I hit that mark in my message with some type of rejoicing. But if you can believe it and receive what I've shared with you thus far, can you give the Lord a praise in the house of God? It was never God's intent that we should look at those that are different than us as somehow being enemies. That was man's assumption of a God truth, and the God truth was love your neighbor as yourself. And literally, they put that part down as a written law, and the other was an unwritten law known as the oral law, oral Torah, that which God has written and then there was that part that man interpreted and added to it. Who's my neighbor? Hmm. Well, everybody else, whether friend or foe. Who's my neighbor? Everybody else, whether lover or loser. Who's my neighbor? Everybody else, whether relation or rival. Who's my neighbor? Everybody else, whether true blue or betrayer. Who's my neighbor? Who am I, who am I to love? Everybody, everybody, everybody. So I ask you today, are you being salt? Are you being light? You just elbowed your husband. 
That's really cool. <laughs> My heart goes out to you, Dale. <laughs> Did she say he elbowed me first? That's just like the spoiled rotten kid, isn't it? <laughs> oh, that was so cool, man. <laughs> I at before your, Beth Ann started beating on her husband. Oh, are you being salt or light? Oh, praise God. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Give me five. Come out of her in Jesus' name. Oh, boy. Having fun in the house of God today. Are, are you being salt and light? Is your life of love that which prompts others to be open to God? These are questions, listen, you need to ask yourself. Is the life of love that I'm living in this world drawing others to Christ? Mm. Do you bless those who curse you? Or do you do Christian cursing? Sketcha, retcha, fetcha. Supercala, fragilistic expialidocious. Do you do good to those who hate you? Or do you avoid them at Myers? Or do you go to Myers because they're at Walmart? Just saying, just saying. Do you pray for those who spitefully use you? <laughs> Hold up. Lord, bring down fire upon them. The fires of judgment. <laughs> Lord, bless them. Keep them protected, Lord. I pray, Lord, that my love may draw them closer to you that love that you've put in my heart. Do you, do, are you being salt and light? Is your life of love that which draws people to God? Do you bless those who curse you? Do you do good to those that hate you? Do you pray for those that spitefully use you? Do you love your enemies? Come on, get real. Get real. Be honest. So we do a message translation again. Matthew chapter 5, verse 43 through 48. You're familiar with the old written law, love your friend, and check it out, and its unwritten companion, hate your enemy. I'm challenging that, the Lord says. I'm telling you to love your enemies. Let them bring out the best in you, not the worst. When someone gives you a hard time, respond with the energies of prayer, for then you are working out of your true selves, your God-created selves. This is what God does. He gives his best, the sun to warm and the rain to nourish to everyone, regardless the good and the bad, the nice and the nasty. If all you do is love the lovable, do you expect a bonus? Anybody can do that. If you simply say hello to those who greet you, do you expect a medal? Any run-of-the-mill sinner does that. In a word, what I'm saying is, 
I wanted to say it differently, but it wouldn't be very loving, so I chose not to. Uh, Grow up, your kingdom subjects. Now live like it. Live out your God-created identity. Live generously and graciously toward others the way God lives toward you. Now, if you can believe that and receive it, would you give the Lord a praise in the house of God? Amen. Amen. Woohoo! I love God with all my heart and all my soul and all my mind and all my strength. I love my neighbor as myself as long as they stay on their own side of the fence. But enemies, huh, huh, what? Got to love my enemies? That really sums it up, doesn't it? And so the question then becomes, what does love require of you today? And the answer is the same every day. And that's number six on your paper. Love requires you to love others in the same manner that Christ loves you. To love others in the same manner that Christ loves you. That's not easy. We think we're all good and that somehow God owes us his love and he doesn't. You got that? Did you get some instructions about music? Yeah, go ahead. Hopefully it's not rocking. Think about it. Love others the way Jesus loves me. I want you to contemplate that for a minute. I'm supposed to love others the way Jesus loves me. I'm supposed to love the Father like Jesus loves the Father. I'm supposed to love my neighbors like Jesus loves my neighbors. And I'm supposed to love my enemies like Jesus loves me. I think back on a personal story. And then a number of years ago, I was working through some father issues. And in fact, uh, all of those things that were boiling up inside of me was affecting uh, the ministry was affecting our marriage Um, and again I didn't say it was stuff boiling up inside of Diane it was stuff boiling up inside of me and we uh, we went away for a retreat and actually some counseling for two or three days and uh, there was a point in that where of course the counselor spent much time with Diane and I but then there was a time where she separated us. And it wasn't because we were fighting like cats and dogs. She just wanted to speak to each of us individually and personally. And uh, when she, it was time for her to speak with me, she had me go through a, a bunch of things. She talked for, to, with me for a while and I was talking about some unforgiveness that I had uh, for the enemy in my life, which was my dad. I considered him an enemy, someone that, uh, I could love from a distance, but I couldn't love him any other way. And uh, he was he was quite abusive, and he was especially abusive to my sister. And although my sister and I were passed around from family to family and dropped off at orphanage homes and other things, 
one of the things that, that Connie and I could always say was we always had each other, even though we didn't have mom and we didn't have dad or whatever else the case may be, we had each other. And uh, he was abusing my sister. And about the same time frame that I was going through trying to figure out my father, I think I was about 45 years old. And that was my midlife crisis, figuring out my father issues. And uh, at the same time, my sister was discovering her father issues through counseling. It wasn't Holy Spirit counseling, so most of what it did was dredge up all of these memories of the abuse. And uh, so anyway, back to the story in this counseling session, we were going through a number of things and, and the counselor was asking me to ask God to forgive me for this, to forgive me for that, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then uh, she said, uh, and, uh, I want you, and she would have me repeat after her, Father, forgive me. And her statement was, Father, forgive me for the sins that my, that my dad committed against my sister. I mean, I, I went on total tilt. Forgive, what? Are you kidding me? Really? Did you read that right? Father, forgive me for the sins my dad committed against Connie? What? And I stalled. I mean, those words would not come out of my mouth. I was, mm-mm. I detest that, man. And uh, after she tried to get me to do it again, I said, no, why, would, why should I do that? And you know what she said to me? And, and I was a pastor at the time, and she said, well, Pastor Rick, isn't that what Jesus did for you? Of course, she had to use the word Pastor Rick, you know, which was kind of like the, uh, the line of accountability. You're supposed to be a man of God. <laughs> pastor Rick, isn't that what Jesus did for you? And I, I realized that, that was so true. That's what he did for me. And I bowed to my knees to the, on the floor and I said, Father, forgive me for the sins that dad committed against my sister. And the wells just broke open. And I began to weep and I began to cry. And it wasn't so much that I was finding a place of forgiveness for my father, but it was more so that that's what Jesus did for me. So we think about all these questions that I've asked you today, and I doubt there's any one of us sitting in the room here that's the model of perfection. And we got L-O-V-E figured out in every one of its aspects. Some of us aren't even that good at loving our spouses. We love our dogs more. So, Father, I come to you now in the name of Jesus. As we've had fun, we've had our moments of levity, and we've had our moments of somberness, and we've had our moments of uh, contemplation. Some of it's been light, some of it's been heavy. But we make ourselves like the rough sawn wood today, and we say, make something 
beautiful. Make something great. All my confusion, you understood. All my mess, you understood. All I had to offer you was brokenness and strife. And yet, you made something beautiful out of my life. So help us, Lord God, to be like that piece of wood, so to speak, metaphorically, but help us to not be resistant even when the final touches come. Help us to not be resistant, but to be pliable, to give ourselves to you like a lump of clay on the potter's wheel so that you may put your hands upon us and wet us with the water of your word and your Holy Spirit to mold us and to shape us into whatever you want us to be and help us to love our enemies. Because we once stood as an enemy against you and you still loved us. In fact, you gave your life for us. You died for us. You suffered for us. You took upon your shoulders all of our sins, the penalty of all of our sins, as though they were sins you committed, and yet you were sinless, utterly clean, perfect. Help us to have a life, Lord, that makes us like salt, that makes us like light, where the life that we live, the love that we show prompts others to draw closer to you forgive us oh father forgive us lord for the times our lack of love has made us quite frankly useless like salt that's no longer useful or light that's under a bushel help us lord forgive us for the times that we have cursed those who curse us that we've prayed down hellfire on those who spitefully spitefully used us We've chosen not to bless. Help us, Lord, to be more like you because that's what you did for us. I believe at this moment the Holy Spirit is just doing a work in the lives of so many. And as usual, this isn't a moment of jumping through hoops. It's a moment of self-reflection. It's a moment of self-examination. It's a moment of laying yourself out on the workman's, craftsman's table to say, make me, Lord. So we give ourselves to you today. And may we carry this message with us, not just throughout the week, but may it crease our lives. May it etch its way into our lives, Lord God. We thank you. We give you praise. And we give you glory in the name of Jesus. And all the saints said, Amen.